millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast that believes that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Stefan Rolnick. In 2002, Anders Breivik, a computer programmer in Norway, began a nine-year plan to finance his 2011 terrorist attack, where he would take the lives of 77 people. 90 minutes before the attack, Breivik sent out a mass email with a manifesto entitled 2083, a European Declaration of Independence. In the manifesto, there was an amalgamation of a variety of different far-right ideologies, with Islamophobia, along with critiques of quote-unquote cultural Marxism, feminism, and multiculturalism. Nine years on from the release of Breivik's manifesto, the far-right in Britain and across the world seems to still be gaining ground. On this episode of the pod, I sat down with friend of the pod, Christina Ariza from the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, who's been comparing the themes of Breivik's manifesto with four far-right groups in the United Kingdom to see how their narratives compare and to see what it can teach us about how to fight back against them. I learned a lot. Christina knows this subject inside out. And if you want more progressives to hear from experts like Christina, then please remember to subscribe, rate and review and share the pod with your friends and comrades. As I say this, I realize I always hear this plea on other podcasts and never actually do anything despite knowing how helpful it is. So I'm going to go rate some of my favorite podcasts right now. And if you have found anything on this podcast interesting or useful, then please do the same. For now, here's Christina Ariza. So Christina, thanks for coming in and thanks for, thanks for coming me. back on the podcast. Second time. <laughs> how does it feel to be back? Yeah, very. Thank you for having me. Back by a popular demand, as <laughs> I say. Since you were last on, you've been working on this report, Narratives of Hate, the Spectrum of Far-Right Worldviews in the UK. So just to start us off very simply, what are the spectrum of far-right worldviews in the UK? That's a very good question to start off. Uh, so the spectrum of far-right worldviews in the UK is a new resource that we have developed at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change and that we are publishing in our latest report about the far-right, which is called Narratives of Hate. So basically what this resource tries is to map the views from mainstream to extreme on four themes that are quite prevalent in the far right's rhetoric. So what we wanted to do is sort of map this gradation of ideology in these ideas that go from mainstream to divisive and then all the way up to extreme, sort of understand the nuance and how 
eventually, you know, more extremist views mm. can build on a foundation of divisive ideas. Have you found it difficult trying to categorize that? Because obviously it's what what we consider to be mainstream seems to shift so much and mainstream might be considered to be ideologically mainstream five years ago now is kind of completely shifted. Has that been a difficult task to pin down exactly what you would count as extreme and what you would count as mainstream? Yeah, that's that's precisely the question. It's a very difficult task. I think for us, the starting point was to find extreme in baseline of messaging that was actually extreme. So we chose Anders Breivik, who is the author of mm. the massacre at in Norway in 2011, as sort of a very clear baseline of what is far-right ideology. And we just took it from there, also looking at what um, activist groups in the UK and saying to sort of take that ideology and scale it down to the mainstream. Mm -hmm. But of course, there is something there about this flexibility and how ideas are shifting and changing, not only in the mainstream, but also in the far right. So it's, I think, also behind the idea of creating this resource was to be quite flexible and just have something that we can update as time goes by. And just before we get into the specifics of the report, I want to kind of take a step back. So there's been a lot of talk you know, in recent months and years, it feels like we've been talking about it for quite a while now, the, the, the idea of the rise of the far right, and especially with Joe Cox's murder mm -hmm. in 2016. Can we just take a stop now and check kind of where are we now? Is this narrative of the far right still rising? Is that true from what you've seen? Um, so the, there has definitely been a spike in incidents, a spike in activism and in and in terror attacks, indeed. And and it does seem that these groups are more on the spotlight now than they ever were. But however, by no means we're fighting a new threat. This is something that has been around for ages and we've been fighting for decades. It's, it has just taken on different manifestations. So yeah, I think it, it is very visible right now and, and it's something that you can see that governments are very much aware now, more so than they were before. Like, for example, it was only two months ago that the British government decided to include the threat of far-right terrorism in how they decide the overall threat level of the country. Wow, two months ago. Yeah. Wow. So before it used to be that it was only Islamist terrorism that was considered. So if the level is five or severe or whatever, it was just based on their assessment of Islamist terrorism. And now they're including the far right in the mix. Just It's just, I think it's quite telling of yeah. how they're kind of becoming a lot more aware of this. It's really hard to know whether to be pleased about that news or to yeah. just be so distraught that it took this long for them to recognize exactly. that. Um, so before we get into your findings as well, just... Give us a sense from a policy point of view for people who might not know that much about how policy is done. How did you approach this question as a as a policy question? Yeah, so obviously our aim with this is to try to influence policy around this area. Uh, but we wanted to start off from a very strong kind of methodological point. So our way of determining and creating this spectrum of ideas for then go to policymakers and say, you need to do this or that, mm -hmm. was to look at the groups and take them by their own words. So basically we examined their social media messaging and we compiled a database of tweets um, spanning from in a period of three months. And then we added that up with a base a sort of a statements from speeches and YouTube videos on their own websites. And for that to have a very rich primary source from which to then create strong policy recommendations. I mean, the thing that comes to my mind when I hear about how you did that research is it strikes me as so bizarre that all this stuff is so freely available. Mm -hmm. Things that used to be confined to the kind of darkest recess of our politics are now 
so widely available online? Do, I mean, do you see that shifting at all? Or does the fact that your research relies so heavily on that speak to the fact that this problem still isn't being dealt with by the social media companies? Um, well, I think that in a way, social media companies have taken some steps to deal with this group. So, for example, they have uh, designated them as uh, dangerous organizations. Facebook did that with the BMP and EDL and all these groups. Uh, so, very recently, actually, and that they've also done some bannings and restrictions. Some groups have been kind of pushed underground, so the more anti-Semitic, neo-Nazi mm-hmm. type of it, you don't see it online. It's, it's yeah. a lot, mainly because they rely a lot on violence, and they say those things that are quickly taken off the platform. But I think it's a hard question with uh, social media because there's a lot of blame, frankly, being put on social media to act on this, but policymakers have not decided where to draw the line yet. Mm. So it's without that kind of policy action behind it, it's quite hard mm. to to know what to do next. And, and that, that always seems like a tough question because, I mean, it's, it's clear to many people that social media and the online space is providing too much of a safe haven for these mm. groups. And the argument that comes back often is, well, should it be the government who decides what is right and what is wrong. But that feels like, how can that stop us from making any progress? Where, how do you see that kind of tension? Is that tension resolvable in any meaningful policy way? Um, so I, I do think that it has to be some sort of consultative process where social media companies are brought in by the government to say, this is what we can and what we can't do. And this is our capabilities, which is something that has been done with violent content, but it needs to be done again and thought about much more profoundly with this other type of threat. But I, but I also think that uh, policymakers need to take the lead in frankly defining where to draw the line. And they've taken action against these groups and they're asking and they're demanding things to be made. But I think it's far too much weight to place on social media companies to come up with that themselves. And does the pressure have to come from people to a certain extent as well? I mean, uh, Yeah, certainly. I think it's, um, it's something that there's a popular willingness uh, for this to happen. And I think people are quite enraged about this, frankly, when it happens. So in the introduction to the report, um, written by ex-Home Secretary Jackie Smith, she talks about the balance that New Labour tried to strike between tackling extremist narratives and encroachment on free speech. Would it be fair to say that when it comes to far-right extremism, that balance has not been currently met yep. as things stand? Absolutely, yeah. I think that's a very good point to make. Obviously, there's always, we need to be willing and we're a free country. We need to protect people's rights to say whatever they want and and sort of have freedom of ex- expression, even though we might not agree with those ideas or we might find them offensive. But I think this has gone beyond that to the point where these groups are just using that loophole to say whatever they want and frankly have uh, free will to demonize a religion or demonize um a group of specific people based on their religious characteristics or ethnic characteristics and try to stigmatize them. And I think that's where we need to be a lot more, take more action to fight against that. And so there's these two things. We've just talked about social media's role in all of this. And then there's an idea of government's role in all of this. And do we know what the kind of tried and tested and proven strategies that governments or the tools that governments have to actually fight back against this these these must be threats that they've faced before 
right, you know, throughout the years. So what, so what is the basic armory that governments have to fight back against these narratives? So um, I think governments have been fighting against these narratives. The problem is that there is a lack of consistency in what those approaches have been. So, for example, you see how the border agency barred uh, the leader of Generation Identity from entering into the country, or you see the army saying we do not accept um, people with support who support far-right ideologies. But the thing is that there isn't a consistent way to deal with this threat. So what we're lacking, apart from trying to get into the ins and outs of what these groups are and where they fall in this space between activism and extremism is having a consistent approach that we can apply throughout. So let's talk about those groups now. So you looked at four groups for this study. So tell us tell us a bit about what those groups are and what common themes you saw throughout all of those groups. So we looked at Generation Identity England, Britain First, for Britain British National Parties, all activist groups in the UK that have been described as far right. And what we wanted to do is not only analyse these groups, but but why they're problematic. What What is it about them that... Mm. Because I think there's an agreement that these groups are a problem, but we maybe don't quite know how to quantify that. So what we did is we went to Breivik's manifesto, which is obviously baseline of clear extremist messaging. And we identified that there were four themes that kept coming across. So these four themes were the idea that there's a conflict between the West and Islam, and that Islam is coming to the West and is turning it into a you know, into an Islamized country and those kind of conspiracies. The second idea that was coming across is that um, is that of victimization, that there's a conspiracy to replace the white race and that sort of multiculturalism and Muslim immigration was, turn, was sort of turning white people into a minority in Europe. And then after that, Breivik argued, well, the establishment is in on it. And they're helping these people come and conquer us. So we should replace democracy because it's not working. So that's our third theme, which was um, anti-establishment views. And finally, Breivik was obviously justifying violence. Because in, in his manifesto, not only he urged people to go out and, you know, commit terror attacks, but he committed a terror attack himself. So what we did was compare these four themes and see if they were appearing in the social media messaging of these groups. And we found that except for justification of violence, they had a very high degree of ideological overlap with Breivik on the other three sims. Okay, so there's, there's so many different questions I want to ask you there. Of course. The first one I want to ask is interesting thing about the democracy element, something mm -hmm. I hadn't quite considered because a lot of that anti-establishment populist rhetoric is kind of centered around a illiberal democracy, which is a kind of you know, pushing back against, you know, minority rights under the guise of a kind of a democratic movement. And often often it does have actually a worrying amount of democratic support for it. But these this anti-establishment, it sounds like, are they using that same rhetoric of, you know, respecting democracy or, you know, whatever else? Or, or is it really, are they, I mean, are they just going straight for the kind of touchdown? Are they, are they, are they literally advocating for the end of democracy? What's their argument yeah. for that? So uh, if Breivik was, got to a point where he was like, democracy is not working, we need to replace this. this these groups are not quite there yet, mm -hmm. but they're sort of saying, you know, our democracy is broken, we can change it. I, I mean, three of these groups tried to get into, into politics. They mm -hmm. didn't have success. Uh, but they're sort of saying, you know, we are the solution, vote for us, we will repeal minority rights or we will try to fight against this multiculturalism thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're still kind of playing the democratic game in a way, but um, they're not rejecting it altogether. But it's sort of that fine yeah. line that you need to... And and that 
interaction with current politics is also disturbing and interesting as well. I think one of the one of the weaknesses and strengths of our system, the strength being that you know we've got of the first past the post system is that you have these two big parties that are relatively strong and robust to infiltration by these kind of more extreme ideologies. But I guess the weakness is that these parties also influence to being shifted by movements that grow from outside them. And I think, you know, whilst it being completely different, Brexit is a good example of that. that you had a Conservative Party shifted to the right by the UK Independence Party. And so it wasn't necessarily that they were infiltrated. It was that they were influenced. And so I'm interested to hear from you to what extent you feel like these messages are being infiltrating the conversation, if not the party. So you don't have these the members of these groups necessarily signing up to join the Conservatives or the Brexit Party. But how are their messages infiltrating? Is that something you pick up as these kind of things seep into the mainstream? So in our analysis, we haven't quite looked at the effect on the mainstream. I think that's a very valid question, though, especially when you think about whether some aspects of the West versus Islam rhetoric might be sort of slowly creeping in and, and, and into public discourse. I think there's that's also a question about more widely populism and what's the effect that that has on mainstream political parties. And we've seen that with minority parties who get like a share of the electorate. They they end up having outsized influence in sort of shifting parties in those ways. So we haven't seen that maybe precisely with these groups in this sense, but I think it's something that we need to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how do these groups see Brexit as well as something that I'm interested in? Because is, is, is Brexit for them just such a small piece in... Because, I mean, the Breivik Manifesto is incredibly disturbing partly because it's so broad ranging it's so ambitious Mm -hmm. in the most horrific way that for these groups is brexit just kind of a small small thing or is it or is it a useful tool for them to kind of leverage some support so yeah i would say the latter i mean in in a sense it's also they do subscribe to brexit and they do support a lot of populist parties around the world because that kind of goes with their own anti-establishment uh party so it's not all of these groups are not, they're not single issue focused on Brexit. It's its a part of their rhetoric, but they it's also a way for them to just push mm-hmm. their ideas even more. Yeah, cool. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the media's role in all of this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So we mentioned Breivik's manifesto, and there's been manifestos of terrorists elsewhere that have cited Breivik's mm-hmm. manifesto and have written their own manifestos. There's been a conversation about the responsibility that big media outlets have for protecting the public um, from that information, right? And obviously these these manifestos get out on all of these, you know, 8chan or Gab mm-hmm. or whatever else. But we've talked about social media and we've talked about government. So let's talk about the media. In your eyes, what do you see as the media's role in countering these narratives? So I think, again, we need to be very wary because we, of course, need to protect freedom of the media to, to sort of report on what they think is important and and have the public know what they're interested in. But but I think there's there's a point to be made in there about balancing the influence that these groups can have. So there is um right after the Christchurch terror attack in New Zealand, the BBC invited the leader of Generation Identity to comment on on the attack. And when you look at the ideas of of the killer and the ideas of generation identity regarding that so-called great replacement. They're basically the same. Mm. So I think the problem there is sort of giving a platform to these groups to sort of push their ideas even further and sort of that amplifying the effect that they have. So I think that media should, of course, talk about these ideas and discuss them very robustly, but they should also kind of take care in not platforming these ideas beyond. Yeah, I I always remember something a friend of mine once said, sarcastically which was remember that one time the bbc allowed tommy robinson to debate on the big questions and then Mm. fascism ended there was this kind of mistaken (laughs) idea that you had to give these things oxygen and then they'll be exposed but obviously we've seen that's not necessarily of course and that's a valid debate about um what should we do with that and it's not an easy debate to answer Mm. either but we think that given that these ideas are very have a very high degree of over ideological overlap with someone such as breivik I think it's a question for us to think, do we really want these people having free reign and just showing their ideas to the mainstream? And and to bring it back to the narratives then, so are these narratives changing or are these, are these always been pretty consistent? Um, so there is a degree of consistency in, in these narratives across history. But for example, what happens often with the far right is that the enemy changes. So if it used to be focused on Jews and it was very anti-Semitic neo-Nazi, mm-hmm. maybe now it's a lot more about, you know, Muslims and is- Islam and multiculturalism. But it might as well be women or disabled people mm-hmm. or, or LGBT tomorrow. So it, it is in, there's a, there's, there, there are a couple of things that are, come once and once again. So it's the in-group sort of idea that this is us, we need to protect us, then there's an out-group demonization of whoever is the enemy and the anti-establishment sentiment is always there. And that often, I remember when you came on to talk about the Vox party in Mm -hmm. Spain and we'll put the link to that episode in the show notes, um, the disturbing and fascinating mix that their leader had, which was, you know, actually there was was a religious element and there was was an anti-feminist element. So these Mm. things can come in many different concoctions but in terms of the counter narrative and I always ask this question and I'm, I'm never sure on my good days I feel like we might have found an answer on my mm-hmm. bad days I feel like I'm not sure we found an answer but what is the counter narrative have we have we worked that out have we seen evidence of where these counter narratives are working um so that's that's a very good question and I don't think 
the evidence is easy to obtain either uh, because, for example, how are you going to counter sort of an anti-establishment narrative from Westminster? It's kind of <laughs> it's a bit contradictory, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, so I think there's a lot of work also being done from the civil society perspective, tried to take it away from the government a bit and, and, and sort of bring in those two parts, like the security part and civil mm. society part together. But the idea of counter-narrative is sort of dispelling the myths that mm -hmm. this, because normally these narratives are based on conspiracies that are not true, or it's just a kind of twisting or a spe special reading of a certain fact. So it's a lot of about dispelling myths and also offering people, you know, critical thinking skills and, and, tools to sort of question those ideas themselves. And, and I guess one of the best ways to dispel myths is through personal experience. So is there a role for communities here in terms of bringing people together physically into the same space has a role to play in breaking down some of these narratives? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the same way that it has been done with Islamist extremism, I think communities play a vital role in not only spotting and combating this, but also trying to sort of promote a more cohesive society and prevent these ideas from taking roots in the first place. So, yeah, absolutely. And so looking to the future, what I'm interested to know what questions kind of, I guess any good report and piece of research, it often kind of stimulates more questions than you went into it with. There's, there's areas that you kind of didn't realize were areas that needed to be explored until you started to explore the initial question. So what questions has this brought up for you going forward? What what are you looking at? What are the areas of interest for you when it comes to the spectrum of far-right worldviews in the UK? So I think for us right now, our, our main policy approach to this is to try uh, to push for these groups to be designated as hate groups. And we think this is a way to sort of counter that lack of consistency that I was talking about earlier and how this action is being taken against these groups. But because we don't quite know where they fall, we we still are, are a bit lost at, at what to do. So I think for me, the next step is sort of to, once we have this spectrum and when, once we understand this a bit more, is try to find policy approaches that actually work, work in the real world. Mm -hmm. so that's that's the way that we can start countering this. Great. Well, we'll be putting the link to the report in the show notes for all our listeners. But thank you, Christina, for coming on. Again. Thank you so much for having me. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer caroline crampton mm -hmm.